Genesis is a book of beginnings. It is a book of firsts. Tonight, we are going to be looking at Genesis 14, and in Genesis 14, we're going to see the first war in the Bible. We're going to see the first priest in the Bible. We're going to see the first tithe in the Bible. You'll remember that Abram obediently left Ur of the Chaldees with his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot, and they went to the land of Canaan, the land that the Lord was going to show him, not give him. You remember there was a famine there, and so he panicked and took um, them to Egypt. It was there that he lied about his wife and said that she was his sister. It was also there that he accumulated a lot of goods and moved back to the land of Canaan, and when he did, he prospered so much that it got crowded. It was crowded between Lot and Abram, and so Abram said, Lot, if you go left, I will go right. If you go right, I will go left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he looked to the plains, and he saw the city of Sodom, and he moved his tent in that direction, a place that was wicked, filled with wicked people, which brings us to our text today, Genesis chapter 14. And here's the five-point outline that we are going to use this evening. We are going to look, number one, at the setting, number two, the stealing, number three, the saving, number four, the sacrifice, and finally, number five, the spoils. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you that Abraham rescued Lot, and I want to thank you that our Lord Jesus came and that he rescued us. As we study this passage this evening, I pray even though it is a complicated passage, uh, that we will be able to understand it. And I pray, dear Lord, that by your Spirit, we will see the glory of Christ and that we will love him more. And so cause us now, Lord, at the end of this hard day, as many are very, very tired, to be attentive, to learn, to apply, and to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, point number one, the setting, the setting. Uh, when I decided this summer which sermon that I was going to preach, I determined what I myself would preach by looking at the calendar. I picked a date. If I had read Genesis 14 before I picked the date, I would have selected another date. And the reason that is true is because there are a dozen names in this chapter which I cannot pronounce. So I'm going to do my best to get it over with. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, and then we will be done with that portion of the sermon. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, and Chedor Laomer, Omer Chedor, Chedor, Chedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, or Goyim means the nations. So if, if you're paying attention now, there are four kings here, and, and they, were, they were very pompous individuals. Uh, Josephus, in his history, uh, writes about these kings. It was said of King Tidal that when he would uh, address his people, that he had an arm motion, which they had to repeat that he would do. And it was, it was known as a tidal wave, a tidal wave, <clears throat> anything to break up the monotony. All right, so we've got tidal wave. So we've got four kings. Now, 
these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, uh, Shinab, king of Adma, uh, Semaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela. We don't even know what his name was. He was just the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedor Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they, that is the five kings, Sodom and so forth, they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, uh, Chedor Laomer and the kings, that is the kings in the north, the four kings in the north who had an alliance up there, who were with him, came and defeated not these four kings, but they start knocking off other places. The Rephium in the Asheroth Carnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavah Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came and they came to and Misfat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Okay, so that's, that's what happened. Now these, these are more just, more than just people with funny names who lived in places that we can't pronounce, but here's the storyline. You have these four kings who are very powerful. They are in the north, and they are collecting tax, or they are collecting tribute from these kings or these um, nations in the south. When we say the word king, do not think of King Nebuchadnezzar or King Sennacherib or King David. These were more like warlord mayors in a city-state. Um, and for 12 years, they had no problems whatsoever with the five cities in the plain, including the king of Sodom, Gomorrah, so forth and so on. But finally, those five cities down there said, mm, we're not going to pay taxes anymore. We're not going to pay tribute anymore. And they stopped. And so the four kings led by Cheddar Laomer, uh, they don't react immediately. It takes them about two years to respond. And instead of going directly after Sodom and Gomorrah and the three other cities, they decide to knock off six different people groups who were isolated in Canaan. Why? Probably so that none of those people would interfere when they went to knock off Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. Let me see if I can show it to you on the map. This is what is uh, at play here. So... Here you have the five cities of the plain. Right in here, probably down there somewhere, is Sodom, Gomorrah, all of these cities. Way up north, off of the map, is where these four kings are. They start coming down here, boom, and boom, 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 and they start, boom, they start knocking off these places before they go after the people that aren't paying them taxes anymore. You follow? Why are they doing that? Probably... They want to make sure that when they fight this war, there's going to be no one coming in from the outside to interfere. That is, that is my guess. Um, so, uh, Chedor Laomer, king of Elam, and the three other kings, they're very fierce. They're very skilled in battle and at warfare. And it's just not acceptable to them that Sodom and company are, have stopped paying taxes. So they're going to go after their money. That is the setting. Point number two, the stealing. 
namely the stealing or the kidnapping of Lot. Uh, Take a look at what happens in verses 8 through 12. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, uh, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sedim uh, with Chedor Laomer, king of Elam, titled the king of Goyim, Armafel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisor, four kings against five. You, you get the picture. They're going to, they're, the kings from the north have come down. They've knocked off the adjacent towns, and now they're getting ready for their main target, the five cities of the plains. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits or asphalt pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country so as to escape. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot. Here's where the kidnapping takes place. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Back on June 27, 1988, there was uh, a fight that was supposed to be a very, very famous fight. It was Mike Tyson versus Leon Spinks. It was called the once for all. Both of these fighters were undefeated. The fight lasted 91 seconds before Mike Tyson knocked him out. This battle that I just read about was shorter than that fight. It was over before it started. As the battle is being described, all it says is, As they fled, they just came out and they just started running away immediately. A few of them survived as they went to the mountains. Some of them fell into bitumen or asphalt pits. Now, I read one commentator, uh, it happened to be John Calvin, who said that they didn't actually fall into these pits, but they jumped into these pits for the purpose of committing suicide rather than be killed in battle. So some of them are killed, some of them make it to the mountains, and some of them, including Lot, were stolen or they were kidnapped. And for some reason, they choose Lot. Now, this was a very unwise move on their part because Lot, if he had been left behind in Sodom, it never, never would have come to the attention of Abram, and Abram never would have pursued them. He never would have plundered these kings from the north. He never would have killed them. So they picked the wrong guy to kidnap. Notice also at this point, Lot is no longer living in a tent. He is now living in a house, and he is living inside the city walls of Sodom. He was first just moving in that direction. Now he has moved in among them, and he is living in Sodom. He didn't go out to fight. They came in and got him. He's dwelling inside the city limits. And I find it very interesting that Lot has left the city of Sodom twice in the Bible, and both times that he leaves the city of Sodom, he has to leave by force. Here, they come, they get him, they carry him away. Remember the other time he leaves Sodom? Uh, That is uh, a few hours before it explodes back in Genesis 19 where God is going to rain fire and brimstone on them. Remember, he was reluctant to leave then. 
And in Genesis 19.16, the angels who, who are trying to reason with Lot, finally they stop reasoning with him, and it says, So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. They literally drag him outside the city. So what you have here in both of these cases, first of all, when he's kidnapped, secondly, when he's brought out by the angels, you could say that probably what they were doing here is they were casting lot. Casting lot. I should have stopped with the... Yeah, yeah. The first one, yeah. Uh, Now... Notice the path. Let's go back to the map for just a minute, the path that the kidnappers are going to take. Uh, Here's where they're captured, and they head north. That's the red line up to Dan, which would be the farthest region of the the country of the Jews, and then on up to Damascus. That's where where Abram is going to catch up with him. But they're heading north. They are getting out of there. Lot is never going to see his home again. So let's be really clear about what's happening here. Lot was not at fault for being kidnapped. It is the guilt and the responsibility of the kidnappers. However, if he had not moved in the direction of Sodom, he never would have moved into the city of Sodom. And if he was nowhere near Sodom, he would not have been abducted, which we read about again in verse 12. Let me read verse 12 again, because this is the actual kidnapping. Then also they, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Lot's problem, as Caleb spelled out last week, is that he deliberately chose to move in the direction of sin. Sin is a snare, it is a trap, it is a deceiver, it is an abductor, it is a kidnapper. Now, sometimes you will find, sin will find you where you are, you are, and your location and your associations are irrelevant, like it says in James chapter 3, verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. Like, you're not going to be able to avoid sin. If we say we have no sin, we're, we're liars and the truth is not in us. We all sin. Everybody's going to sin. Everybody's going to stumble. However, Lot gave sin a helping hand by raising his family within the city limits of Sodom. It happens, but it's rare that somebody is kidnapped by sin when they are in a good place with good people. Usually, the kidnapped Christian comes for biblical counseling and says, I'm in a mess, and I need help. And you start to counsel, and you start to ask questions. Invariably, what you will find when you ask them, how did you get into this mess in the first place? It is because they were cavalier about who they were with and where they were and not watchful about their associations and their locations and the provisions which they made for the flesh. Every once in a while, someone will be in a good place with good people and they will fall into a pattern of sin. It happens, but most of the time, they have usually chosen to move in the direction of Sodom. It is not the fault, nor is it the responsibility of computer companies or those who make smartphones that you are addicted to pornography. However, just like Lot, 
you are actually asking to be kidnapped by sin if you are living within the city walls of unlimited access to sexually explicit images. Again, it's not the fault of the phone. It's not the fault of the computer. But when you have a phone or a computer which gives you unlimited access to sexually explicit images, what you're doing is you're moving your family inside the walls of Sodom. Abraham was looking for a city. Lot was looking for an earthly city. And unfortunately, Lot found one, and that is where he was found. And as is always the case, kidnappers will find you. So point number one is the setting. Point number two is the stealing. Here's point number three, the saving. Abraham saved and rescued Lot, verses 13 through 16. Then one who had escaped came and told Abraham, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner, these were allies of Abraham. When Abram learned that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them in Tuhoba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So get the picture here. Abraham is informed as to the fact that his nephew has been abducted. And it only takes one man to escape in order for Abraham to find out. What I find interesting about this is how in the world did this one man who escaped know that he should go to Abram to find help? I think the answer is through Lot. Because even though Lot was in Sodom, obviously he still spoke well of his uncle Abram. Uh, Lot is classified in Scripture, as Caleb told us last week, as a righteous man. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, and it says, if he rescued, speaking of God, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man, that righteous man is Lot, that righteous man lived among them, that is the people of Sodom, lived among them day after day, and he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He's in a bad place, but he is still a good guy. And obviously, he had talked about his uncle Abraham. One guy escapes, and who does he run to? He runs to Abraham. And notice from the text that Abram also had friends who were allied with him. It, it, all over this chapter, we see alliances. And it seems as though alliances were the means of survival in ancient Canaan. So we don't know anything about Abram's friends except for the fact that they were there and they were willing to go with him to help rescue Lot, which tells us that Abraham was a man of great influence. Uh, it's amazing uh, that a man of his age who was not even raised in that territory, he was a nomad, would have such an impact upon his neighbors. And so 
It's interesting that this guy who just comes wandering in as an old man living in a tent all of a sudden starts to form alliances and he is a man who is having an impact upon society. He's having an impact upon his neighbors. Notice also that Abram was a man of great wealth and a man of great substance and a man of great influence. Um, You know, when I read Genesis 12 and 13, and I'm trying to envision what is going on, Damien preached on it two weeks ago. Caleb preached on it last week. You have this old man who's living in Iraq, in Ur of the Chaldees. He, according to the book of Joshua, is an idol worshiper. God comes to him, in some way communicates to him, and says, get up and go. We know that he does not have any children. He has a wife. She's a good bit older at the time, as is he, and he's got his nephew, I, in my mind, am picturing the three of them just sort of wandering off from Ur of the Chaldees into Canaan, and then they go down to Egypt, and they come back from Egypt, and it's just sort of maybe just a handful of people. That's not the case at all. As we read this text, uh, we know that, first of all, from the previous chapter, that it was getting crowded. Well, in order for some place to get crowded, you need a lot of people. And I never considered him to be able to assemble from his own household an army of 318 trained men. Now, that number does not include the untrained men, the boys, the women, and the girls. And so you're probably looking at a tribe that has surrounded Abram at this time of about a 1,000 people. I never envisioned it that way at all. Uh, When I think of Abram leaving Ur and wandering around in tents, I think it's just a handful of people, but this shows that I was really wrong. And it also shows that God has been ridiculously kind to him and has blessed him beyond measure. It shows not only he is a man of influence, that he is a man of success, that he is a man of wealth, but it also shows that he is a man of wisdom. Uh, One commentator said that Abraham, if you want to use the definition of king that's being used in this chapter, probably was a king just as much as the guys with the funny names. Notice also, he was a man of loyalty and he was a man of love. He could have easily, judgmentally, uh, just bemoaned the fact that Lot was captured and he could have said, You know, Lot, I am sorry that this has happened to you, but uh, my nephew, you have gotten yourself into this predicament. It it was your choice. You wanted to move in that direction. You moved your family inside that city. And so, my friend, you reap what you sow. This is not my responsibility. Uh, How often do we see our brothers and sisters make knuckleheaded choices, which result in some form of agony for them, and then by extension, the agony that they're going through becomes part of our agony, and we say, well, this is really too bad, but it is the life that they themselves have chosen. I mean, you sleep with the dogs, you wake up with the fleas, this is not my responsibility. That's not the, Abra- that's not the attitude that Abram had at all. He loves his brother's son, and he is willing to do whatever it takes to rescue him. He is willing to rescue his own life and the lives of those in his household in order to rescue him, even though Lot was the one that got himself into this mess. You know what sin is? I mean, hello, church. Listen, church. This is what sin is. It is people getting themselves into messes. You know what church is? Church is 
helping people get out of those messes by the gospel. That's what it is. Don't ever let someone drown just because they decided foolishly to jump into the deep end of the pool. No. Rescue the perishing and care for the dying and snatch them in pity from sin and the grave and weep o'er the erring one and rescue the fallen. You yourself are subject to a fall also. Remember what it says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. If someone is spiritual, if anyone is taken into fault, those of you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We are here to go after one another and to help one another when the other person messes up. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't be rebuked. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't be put under discipline. But nevertheless, we have got to go after the people who make knuckleheaded choices. It says in James 5, 19 and 20, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So not only is Abraham loving and compassionate, but notice that this is a man of courage. He's got 318 soldiers. Now, that is a large number, but that is not a large army, especially when you were going after four successful, powerful kings who have just defeated five cities faster than Mike Tyson defeated Leon Spinks, and effortlessly they knocked off six tribes or people groups around that area. He's going after skilled warriors. And, and, and as I said, this is the first war in the Bible, which begs the question, where in the world did Abram learn how to do battle? And I think the answer is, I don't think he knew how to do battle. I don't think he had military experience, which heightens his courage. Now, he was brilliant as a tactician, and he was skillful and wise in that he attacked these armies at night from different directions. But even so, the numbers were not in his favor. For him to even attempt this required not only love, but it required bravery. And lo and behold, he, like Gideon, was successful. You see, I don't think that Abram was successful because he had the element of surprise and it happened to be really dark that night, or because his men were so well-trained. I believe the reason why Abram was successful in pursuing these people and rescuing his nephew and the others and being successful in this military victory is simply because God gave him the victory just as he did with Gideon. It is an expression, it is an illustration of what God meant when he said to Abraham back in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. I think, plain and simple, God was with him. But notice, he not only rescues Lot, but he liberates all the captive captives, and he gets back all of their stuff. And so it was a great military success for a brave, loving, influential, wise, old, very old man. May God grant us courage and love to venture out and to attempt 
to rescue our brethren who have been captured by sin in this evil age. So we've looked at the setting. We have looked at the stealing. We have looked at the saving. Now we move on to the sacrifice, verses 14 through 17. I'm sorry, verses 17 through 20. 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of Cheder Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The most intriguing thing about Melchizedek, when we're answering, asking the question, who is he? The most intriguing thing about him is that we don't know very much about him. The point of Melchizedek that makes him so important is that there is so little written about him. He appears in this narrative for a total of, if you're keeping score, three verses, and then he disappears for 900 years until King David writes about him in Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you, the Messiah, the great high priest, Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here he comes into the scene. He's there for three verses. Then he disappears for 900 years. Then he disappears from the pages of Scripture for another 1,000 years until the writer of Hebrews mentions him eight times. For now, we're just going to look at what is written about him in Genesis 14, and then we will look at the other references. First of all, you need to remember, and this is so important, the book of Genesis is a forest filled with family trees. Lots of detailed genealogies, where people came from and who their great-grandfathers were, etc., etc., and then all of a sudden, you have this guy showing up out of nowhere with no papers at all. And according to Genesis 14, here is all we know about him. He is a king and a priest. And he is the king of Salem, meaning he is the king of Jerusalem. He is not a pagan, but he is priest of the Most High God. He gives bread and wine to Abram. And he gives a blessing to Abram and he receives a tithe or a tenth from Abram. Now, this tithe is probably not from the spoils, from the recent plunder of the four kings. It was probably from Abram's personal possessions. But that is all we know about Melchizedek from Genesis. And quite frankly, it leaves us with more questions than it does answers. But as I said before, the key to understanding and appreciating Melchizedek is not what we know about him, but rather what we don't know about him and what we will never discover about him. And why do I say that? The reason I say that is because the New Testament book of Hebrews uh, gives us the answer as to who Melchizedek was. 
Uh, and the, let me give you a hermeneutical principle. Uh, do you know what hermeneutics is? It is the science of biblical interpretation. Interestingly, on June 1st of this year, uh, there was a $2,000 Jeopardy answer to which the correct response was hermeneutics. The answer was, from the Greek uh, for interpreter, this plural word is the branch of theology dealing with the interpretation of biblical text. None of the three got it right. I was jumping up and down in my chair saying, <laughs> hermeneutics, what is hermeneutics? So I would have won $2,000 had I been there. Biblical principles of interpretation. And here is the one that you need to know for our purposes this evening. Whenever the New Testament speaks of or explains something in the Old Testament, then you have the meaning of that Old Testament text fully spelled out. When the New Testament does not explain an Old Testament story or reference, then you do the best you can to figure it out. But a slam dunk as to what something means from the Old Testament can be determined with 100% accuracy if a New Testament author explains it. Well, in the case of Melchizedek, Genesis is very vague, and Psalm 110 is somewhat spotty. But Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, is very explicit as to who Melchizedek was and why he happened to be there. Listen as I read this text very quickly. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth or a tithe part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, uh, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy. This is the stuff we don't know about him, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. But resembling, he's not actually the son of God, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. In other words, when we leave him in the text, he continues to be a priest. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received, this is the Levitical priesthood within Judaism, received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself received tithes, receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he still well, he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. There's a lot more that we could say about this text of Scripture. I'm just going to say that if you would like to learn more about who Melchizedek is, I would direct you to a sermon uh, which I preached on this subject back on May 16th, 2021, the uh, title of the sermon, Not Playing with a Full Melchizedek. But for now, but for now, here's what I want you to notice from the Genesis story. And this is something that I never noticed before. 
This is something which I believe helps to unlock the mystery of this shadowy character, Melchizedek. And it's not that he appears. And it's not where he appears. Nor is it what he says as he appears. But here's the thing that I want you to notice. It is when, when, W-H-E-N, when he appears. God brings Melchizedek onto the scene at Abraham's greatest hour. Why does God in his providence wait to have Melchizedek enter the stage until after the slaughter of the four kings? Here's my guess. Because what happened to Abram in Genesis 14 is arguably the high watermark of earthly success that Abram ever succeeds achieved. Humanly speaking, he just defeated a far superior army to his tiny army. Abram, humanly speaking, by human standards, is riding the quest, the crest of the wave of success and power and popularity and achievement. And he has just achieved something amazing. Yet at the pinnacle of his earthly success, notice what God does. He brings out Melchizedek and the focus goes from Abram to Melchizedek, and Abram proves that he is inferior to Melchizedek because Melchizedek blesses him, and Abram pays tithes to Melchizedek. Abram is thankful and joyful and humble in his greatest hour of success, and his response is to give generously. He sees his own need for a priest, and he sees his own need for a blessing. He is not puffed up, The Melchizedek encounter shows the humility of Abraham. Now, we could talk a lot about how Melchizedek prefigures Christ and the priesthood of Christ and priesthood. Much could be said about that. But I want to concentrate on Abraham this evening and just note how humble he was. He wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar who said, look at this Babylon that I have created. God humbled him. Here's the key. Do you know why God did not humble Abraham? It's very simple. It's because Abraham humbled himself. Melchizedek is a picture or a type of Christ. And it is there to remind us that we do not have anything apart from Christ and that we have access to God through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who died for us and who has risen for us and who lives forever as our great high priest and who blesses us and the one to whom we should give not only of our substance but our very lives. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Which brings me to point number five, the spoils. To the victor goes the spoils. Verses 21 through 25. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, give me my people back, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn, he's swearing an oath here, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, that is my allies, let Enor and Eshkol and Mamre take their share. King of Sodom is hidden successfully, comes out, meets Abram, 
He's happy to see his people are back. And he says to Abram, look, just give me my people back and all of the goods that you got from the, uh, from the plunder, you can keep those. And Abram emphatically says no. He vehemently refuses. And he says, no, we'll take what my men have eat and my allies, will they can take their share, but not me. And notice that it is not a spur-of-the-moment decision by him. He had purposed ahead of time. He had sworn an oath to God saying, I am not so much as going to take even a shoelace from you. And I'm going to tell you why I'm not going to take it from you, O king of Sodom. It's because I do not want to rob God of his glory and give you an opportunity to boast and say around this region of the land, look at Abraham, he's rich because I made him rich. In other words, I do not want to be obligated to you or tied to you in any way. You remember in The Godfather, on the day of Vito Corleone's daughter's wedding, the undertaker, Amerigo Bonacera, comes to the godfather and he asks for justice concerning his daughter. And the godfather agrees to help the undertaker, but then he says this, and I quote, Someday, and that day may never come, I will call upon you to do a service for me. But until that day, accept this justice as a gift from my daughter's we- on my daughter's wedding day. In other words, he said in a very nice way, I'm going to help you. But know this, going forward, I own you. And Abraham wanted to distance himself in all ways from the king of Sodom. And he knew that if he accepted the spoils, God would be robbed of his glory. And so I ask you on this point, who owns you? Who are you obligated to? Parents, grandparents with respect to an inheritance, an employer for a position, a friend who promises to do you favors, who has done favors for you? Or are you free to give glory to God because you are obligated to no one? Abraham knew that the glory of God was at risk, and therefore he refused to take anything. May we live in freedom, not enslaved to any other human being. And May we live to the glory of God. And if he makes us great, glory to God. And if he makes us small, glory to God. But we are who we are because he made us that way, not because we are answering to someone else. So, the setting. There's many kings, they're all dead. Their kingdoms are gone, but Jesus sits enthroned forever. The stealing. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. The saving. Jesus did more than just risk his life to rescue us, but he most certainly gave up his life upon the cross so that we could be saved and delivered. The gospel is of first importance. The sacrifice, Melchizedek points us to our great high priest who sits at God's right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. And the spoils, Jesus was offered the kingdoms of this world by the devil. And with scripture on his lips, he declined the author offer so that God would receive the glory, and he did it to save his people. So may we worship him as king. May we go nowhere near Sodom. May we thank him for saving us at the cross. May we worship him as our great high priest, and may we make decisions which will result in God receiving all the glory. Father in heaven, 
Lord, we are so prone to take glory for ourselves. Lord, thank you for this example of Abraham who wanted you to get all the glory. Lord, change us, please, so that we will direct all of the glory to Jesus Christ, our King. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.